So Ephesians 4, 7 to 16 is in view this morning. What is necessary for an individual or a congregation to grow in doctrine and in holiness all the way to maturity? What is necessary? Perhaps good preaching? Perhaps good books? Perhaps if we had a world-renowned preacher here at CRBC, we would be set. We would be sure. We would be sure to grow up in doctrine and in holiness. We would be sure to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. If we just had a famous author or a famous preacher, a really, really gifted theologian in our midst. Or maybe uh, we need something else, whatever it may be. How would you answer that question? What is necessary for an individual or a congregation to grow in doctrine and in holiness all the way up to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? The way this passage answers that question is by saying not by any one particular gifting, not by any one particular person in the church, but by every member ministering to one another in the ways that Christ has gifted them. That's how this passage says that we're going to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, namely into Christ. So you might have a top-notch preacher up here in the pulpit, someone like uh, R.C. Sproul or a John MacArthur or someone like that. But unless every member is ministering to one another in the ways that Christ has gifted them, this passage would indicate that this church isn't going to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. We need every member to minister to one another in the ways that Christ has gifted them. Look at verse 16. The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love or if you have a different translation it might say as every joint supplies as every joint supplies so if some of the joints don't supply what's going to happen the body's not going to grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is not going to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as verse 13 says. The big idea is not hard to understand. The big idea of this passage is not hard to understand. God has set the church up in such a way that it will only reach its goal, doctrinal and practical maturity, if each person plays their part. That's not rocket science. We all need to be doing our part if this church, specifically, CRBC, is going to grow up into Christ. Leadership gifts are not the be-all and end-all. Leadership gifts are important, yes. But leadership gifts in the church are for, look at verse 11 and 12. He lists some of the leadership gifts in the church. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why or for what? Verse 12, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Sometimes you hear leaders of the church referred to as the minister. The minister did this, or the minister said that, or we're going to the minister's house. But my question is, if the saints are to be doing the work of ministry, then aren't all of us in some way ministers, one to another? So I take exception to that language of referring to the pastor as the minister. Why not refer to him as a minister, refer to him as a pastor even, because we're not all pastors, but recognize that there is an every member ministry that is mandated by the scriptures. Each of us need to be doing our part if the church is going to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. This doesn't negate the value of the church's pastors, for example, but it does put their value into perspective. This passage teaches us that pastors play only a role, not the role. There is more than one role in the church. So in order for the church to reach maturity in Christ, we need more than pastors. We need more than leadership gifts. We need each part to be working properly. We we need every joint to be supplying. In order for the church to reach maturity in Christ, every member of the church must minister one to another in the ways that Christ has gifted them. We're going to seek to explain further and apply this idea this morning, looking at the passage under three headings. The goal, the gifts, and the giver. So let's begin with the goal. The goal of the, that the church should be aiming at is maturity in Christ. We see this already, I've already mentioned it from verse 13. Maturity in Christ. Verse 13 says that we should be growing up to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And verse 15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. The goal of the church should be maturity in Christ. Okay, that sounds great, but what does that look like? It looks like, broadly speaking, two things. Orthopraxy and orthodoxy. You've probably heard the word orthodoxy before and have some intuitive idea of what it means. Orthodoxy means, literally, straight teaching. Ortho is straight. That's why you go see the orthodontist to get straight teeth. Ortho means straight. Orthodoxy is straight teaching, straight doctrine. Orthopraxy is straight practice. So right teaching and right practice. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. These are the broad categories that we can look at and press toward and evaluate progress in growth as pertaining to maturity in Christ, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Where do we see that in this passage? Well, we already have seen from Ephesians 4 verse 1 that Paul is very concerned with orthopraxy. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
If we go back even to the first three chapters, we could see that Paul is obviously also concerned with orthodoxy, right doctrine. He just spent three whole chapters basically teaching us about right doctrine. And now he comes to Ephesians 4.1 and he says, Now, I'm going to talk about the way you should live. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. So we could see even from just Ephesians 1.1 all the way through to Ephesians 4.1 that Paul is concerned about both of those things, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. But we see also, even in the passage before us today in 4.13, implied, he says, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And verse 15, to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Certainly, those two phrases are sand, are, are like bread around a, the filling of the sandwich, which is doctrine. Um, clearly, in verse 14, he has doctrine in mind, right? He says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. Clearly, that's in view. But the bread around that filling... The slices of bread around that filling speak not only to growing up into the doctrine of Christ, but it's implied that we're to be growing up to be like Christ. Right? It, it's not explicitly stated there, but what does it mean to grow up to mature manhood? What does it mean to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Stature is often uh, to do with height, right? Grow up to the height of Christ. That the way that our children might grow up to our stature, that they might grow up to look like us, so to speak. That's implied in that phrase. And and in verse 15, again, to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. In every way, certainly at least indicates, not only doctrinally, but in every way in which we could conceive we are to grow up into Christ. And so what you see is that both Doctrine and practice are very much in Paul's view as he thinks about maturity in Christ. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, to be Christ-like in the way that we live, in the manner in which we live. And he wants us not to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. He wants us to be firmly rooted doctrinally and He wants us to resemble Christ practically. So those two categories could serve to uh, comprise a definition of what maturity in Christ is. Doctrinal and practical maturity. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The mature Christian is not one who can merely spout off correct theology, nor is the mature Christian one who is a sweet and dear saint who uh, is full of the fruit of the Spirit but mixed up on all kinds of issues, but one who does both simultaneously. This is what we should be aiming at. We should not settle for one or the other. Both are essential. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. As one commentator says on this passage, military recruiters don't debate whether a left-legged soldier or a right-legged soldier is more suitable for combat. 
Military recruiters are looking for two-legged soldiers. Likewise, birds with one wing can't fly. And I'm pretty sure if you boarded a plane at Grantley Adams International Airport and looked out the window and noticed that one wing was considerably shorter than the next, you would be looking to deplane very quickly. So it is, when we come to think of Christian maturity, we should not reduce Christian maturity to merely orthodoxy, nor should we reduce Christian maturity merely to orthopraxy. When Paul speaks of Christian maturity in this section, he has both in mind. That we should be doctrinally sound, and that we should be walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. So that's the goal. Let's now talk about the gifts. It says, grace, in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on, and he does talk about leadership gifts, which I'll come back to in a minute. But what he does not do in this passage is give us a comprehensive list of all the gifts that God gave to men. He doesn't do that in this passage. He just says, Christ gave gifts to men. And that those people need to use those gifts if the church is going to grow up to maturity. That's all he really says in this passage. And that he says that the leaders of the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, should equip the saints for the work of ministry. But what the exact ministries are that the saints do, the exact ways in which the saints minister one to another, he doesn't enumerate those things in this passage. But it's implied that many parts are necessary. It's implied that all parts are necessary. Each part needs to be working properly. There are a variety of gifts given unto men by Christ Jesus, and all need to be utilized if a church is going to grow up into maturity, both in terms of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So there are the obvious gifts that many people think of when they think of gifts in the church. They, there are the gifts of uh, leadership, teaching, those kinds of things, the obvious ones, the explicitly doctrinal ones, the explicit, uh, uh, the gifts where people are involved in giving explicit biblical advice or biblical counsel. Those are the gifts that are often in the forefront of people's minds. The church leaders, those are the gifted ones. We often think of those ones, the obvious ones. And there are gifts uh, given by Christ to the church for leadership, for preaching, for teaching, etc., etc. Again, we're not negating those things. We're just putting them in perspective that they're not the only gifts. They're some of the gifts. There are less obvious and undervalued gifts as well. And there are also ways in which we all work together in which every joint supplies and in which each part works properly, which doesn't necessarily require a particularly strong gifting, but is just part of sharing the load with one another. So you could think, you could think of everybody working together in the church in two ways. One is in complementary ways. In other words, I'm gifted one way, you're gifted another way, you're gifted another way, and we all work together in complementary ways. Another way you could think about it is load sharing in the church. 
that there are things that need to be done that don't necessarily require a particular gifting, but it's right and it's fitting that it shouldn't always, things that need to get done in the church shouldn't always default to one person, but that we should all have a service of attitude, uh, uh, pardon me, an attitude of service and cooperation with one another in the church. So things, simple things, on that note, simple things like opening the doors in the morning or locking the doors at night don't require a particular gifting. Or say, for instance, setting up the communion doesn't necessarily take a particular gifting, just arranging things and so on and so forth. But it's good for us to share the load. It's good, it's good for each of us to cooperate with one another on those things. And so not only working together in complementary ways, but working together in load-sharing ways. This is all part and parcel of a church functioning well together. That it shouldn't be the old uh, 1090 rule that some people talk about where there's 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. Now, there are situations or seasons or whatever where sometimes uh, it happens that way for a time. Uh, but the ideal that churches should be moving towards is the 100-100 rule. 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. Right? That we should all be working together in ways... Uh, that are complementary to one another and sharing the load together to help the church uh, grow onward and upward to Christian maturity. Though a pastor is often the most visible and recognized member of a church or, or churches that have multiple pastors or lots of leaders, they're often the most visible and recognized members of churches. But many different types of people help make the church what it is. And if we look more closely, many different types of people have helped make the pastor who he is. So let's think about that a little bit. There are prayers in a church. I don't mean prayers, like the things that we utter, but the ones that do the uttering. The prayers. There are prayers. In good, healthy churches, you will always find prayers. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in the 1800s, and he, he's really well known. He's referred to often as the Prince of Preachers. This man was gifted by God to preach His Word, and, and many, many people were saved under his ministry and grew upward to maturity under his ministry. But Spurgeon said, every time we gather to meet, there's people in the basement praying. And they're the boiler room of this church's ministry. The way that a, a ship has a boiler room that supplies it power and thrust to move through the seas. The prayers down in the basement were the boiler room of Spurgeon's ministry. Right? So we see him visible, but underneath are the prayers. Right? There are givers. There are practical needs in the church that require finances. And there are givers in uh, healthy churches. And even in poor healthy churches which don't have big budgets, there are givers. Because there are always some needs. Even churches that uh, run very, very simply with very little overhead, there are benevolent needs. Brothers and sisters who need some help, who need some assistance. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to care for one another and be a healthy church, 
bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, there need to be givers. So in every church, you're going to find givers. In every healthy church, you're going to find givers. As I look back on my experience in the church over the years, there are especially two men who come to mind who God has blessed financially and each gives very generously to the church. Some people are gifted in that way, that they have been blessed by God with a lot of money and they can use that gift to help the church in various ways. But let me make this point. Neither of those men could carry the church alone. So even though they were giving large amounts and giving disproportionately, neither of them could carry the church alone. So each giver is necessary. And you'll remember the story that Jesus told where all the people were coming up and putting their big amounts in the box. And the widow came up and gave two little coins. And Jesus says, I tell you what, she gave more than them because they were giving for show and all this, but she gave out of what she had. Right? First Corinthians tells us, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person doesn't have. And so it's not, you may be gifted to be a giver, even if you're not gifted with gobs of money to give, right? There are the servers also. There are practical needs which need to be, which need to, things that need to get done in the church, right? And there are people who are really servant-hearted. As I mentioned, it may not take a great spiritual gift to unlock the padlock at the back door here on a Sunday morning, nor, nor might you not need a great spiritual gift to squirt the juice from the dispenser into each of the little communion cups. But there are people who are gifted as servers, who are eager and ready and have their eyes open to do those sorts of things wherever needed. Whatever needs to be done, I'm there to do it. You name it. You need me to unlock the door, I'll unlock the door. You need me to put some juice in those communion cups, I'll put some juice in those communion cups. Sweep the floor, whatever, no problem. There are people who have that real attitude of service. And healthy in healthy churches, you're always going to find those people too. Servers. There was a story that I heard of uh, a big conference. And there was really well-known conference speakers. I don't know if this is true, by the way. But it illustrates the point. So I'm going to tell you the story and you're going to get the gist of it. But there's this big conference, and there was big, well-known conference speakers. And uh, it was hosted by a local church. And so the local church pastors were there as well. And some of the kids were running around and, and spilled some of the refreshments on the floor, whether it was, who knows, some, some punch or some juice or some coffee or whatever. Something got spilled on the floor. And so the local church pastors were there, and they said, oh, somebody, somebody, please clean that up. And, uh, um, you know, they were going around and they, they would try to find this person. And, oh, where's, where are the deacons? They need to clean this mess up, so on and so forth. And, you know, their, their attitude was, obviously, it's not my job, right? I'm a pastor. I'm not, it's not me to sweep it up. And then one of the really well-known conference speakers grabbed a mop and came over and just started sweeping it up, cleaning it up, mopping it up, right? And the local, pa- local church pastors were put to shame recognizing that they wouldn't lower themselves. And here were their their esteemed guests, their keynote speakers, who were prepared and who were ready to serve. 
as I said, I don't know if that's a true story or not, but it illustrates the point well. That sometimes when there's a job to do as Christians, we should just be servant-hearted to do it. That should characterize all Christians. But there are those who are just particularly gifted to just serve. They're happy just serving behind the scenes, doing whatever needs to be done. You need something done, you call on them, no problem, I can do it. I think of a custodian or a janitor. What, what would you call a person with that role down here? Same thing? Same thing? Okay. A custodian or a janitor in one of my former churches. And he served a life sentence in prison during which he was uh, wonderfully converted by God. And he came out of prison as a new man uh, after however many years. And he just works faithfully as a custodian. Week after week, just, just cleaning the church, arranging things, cleaning up messes, no problem. You ask him to do something, yeah, no problem, no problem. And he's always got a smile on his face. He's always happy and content to be doing what he's doing. And you see him, and he's just got such a good attitude. I think that he's got that real gift of just, he doesn't care about prestige. He's not, he doesn't care about respect. He, he recognizes that he's been loved by God and called by God to belong to him, that he uh, has a new life, that he's been put together with brothers and sisters in a local assembly, and that it's his job now as a Christian to seek to love God by loving his neighbor, to seek to serve God by serving the people around him. And so he does it with a cheerful heart. It's a wonderful example of a servant-hearted brother. And many people have this gift of just serving others by being good examples. There are two people that I can think of, and I'm not going to change, I'm not going to say their names, I'm going to change their names because I don't want to embarrass them, but there are two people I can think of uh, in a previous church that I was part of. Both of them, both of them were diagnosed with cancer within the last five years. And both of them were struggling through their cancer diagnoses and their cancer treatments uh, throughout that time. Both of them uh, had such a good attitude through it all. As far as I understand, both of their cancers are in remission now, as far as I understand, and and they're sort of back to normal duties and normal responsibilities. But through it all, they kept such a good attitude. When things were in the balance and they didn't know whether they were going to recover or not recover, such a good attitude, such a hope in the Lord. It's like so joyous. I talked to the man, let's call him George. You know, George, how are you doing? This must be a really hard time. Well, yes it is, but to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, I still have fellowship with God. He will never leave me or forsake me. I still have fellowship with the brothers. Lots of them have been calling and coming around to visit me. And I know that to die is gain. And so whatever happens, I'm trusting the Lord. Such a good attitude through it all. An example, using His gift. That's a joint supplying. That's one part working properly. So you might think, oh, well, I've been, I've been taken out of commission by this cancer diagnosis. No, you haven't. You've actually, uh, this is an opportunity for you to serve, continue to serve the body of Christ in a new capacity. Perhaps by being an example of what orthopraxy looks like. Right? Same thing, same thing with his wife. And through it all, you would see them showing up to church. 
looking bedraggled and, and pretty rough from their treatments, but showing up and worshiping with hearts full of praise and adoration for our great and our glorious God and hoping in the world to come. Right? Examples of orthopraxy to us. Behind the ministry of the Word, pardon me, let me back up a second and, and just reinforce that point. Examples. One of the things that we take an oath toward one another as we receive new members into the church, we take an oath to extend to the new member godly example. That's one of the things. Go back and, and read if, if that slipped your mind. One of the things that we actually take an oath toward one another in this church is that as we become members in this church, we're, one of the things we're committing to is to extend to one another godly example. And so that's a real area of service. How many times have you been benefited and how many times have you been blessed by the godly example of a brother or sister? How many times have you been edified? How many times has that spurred you on to greater heights of Christian maturity? And so bear in mind that that is a real practical way that each of us can serve one another by extending godly example. Now moving on. Behind the ministry of the Word, those who are gifted for preaching and teaching in the church, there are a multitude of people. So you see someone, whether it's me or whether it's somebody better known and more highly gifted or whoever, but behind every person who has been gifted in some measure with preaching and with teaching the Word of God, there are a multitude of people. Let me, let me just get autobiographical for a minute just to, just to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. For me, my dad was a huge formative influence in helping me grow in orthodoxy. My, my dad spent a lot of time with me as a kid teaching me what the Bible says. And I would ask questions. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And we would look at the Bible together and he would show me things and explain things to me from Scripture. He had a tremendous influence on my orthodoxy. And in that sense, in preparing me for the exercise of my own gifting. Secondly, a dear, dear saint who's long gone on to glory, Mrs. Sargent, my Sunday school teacher, for something like roughly 40 years, week after week after week, teaching the Sunday school kids. Again, she had an enormous influence on me, investing in my orthodoxy, answering my questions, uh, correcting my errors, so on and so forth. Russell Moore is a prominent pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, and I, th- I think he would even acknowledge he was overstating the point a little bit, but um, you, you get what he's saying. He said, I was pri- something like this, I was privileged to attend Sunday school when I was growing up, and that had a tremendous impact on me. In fact, I, I would wonder whether uh, regular Sunday school attendance in a good church as a kid or a seminary education would be of more value. And as, as I said, I think he was understating, overstating the point a little bit, but you get the idea that, that even uh, a service like that, teaching the little ones, teaching the little hearts, you might think that um, it's, it's a small thing, but it's an important part of helping the body grow up to maturity, and it can have second generation dividends as well. Then think about authors. There are those who are gifted in um, uh, preaching and teaching through print. 
For me, one of the books that has been most helpful to me in my Christian life is The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. That book helped me tremendously with my orthodoxy. Another book that has been really helpful to me in terms of orthopraxy, Christ-likeness, growing in sanctification, is Keeping the Heart by John Flavel. What you see is that there are people behind the people who are exercising other gifts. And that people don't just appear in a vacuum with certain gifts ready to be exercised. But the maturation of those gifts and the development of those gifts happens over many years as people invest in a person and as their extended godly example and so on and so forth. To have friends and fellow pastors who hold me accountable and correct me uh, when I'm in sin or when I'm in doctrinal error, all of these kinds of things play into the exercise of my gift. And so likewise, we, what I'm saying, I'm, just, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, but all of us can actually help one another exercise our own gifts better. And so we need to recognize that whether in public, more visible ministries, or whether in ministries to one another behind the scenes, uh, we all have an important role to play and we all can come alongside and help one another exercise our gifts more faithfully and more effectively even something as simple as uh, simply being a friend to someone is a valuable ministry to a brother or sister in Christ you, we read in the scripture one of the most famous friendships between Jonathan and David We read in 1 Samuel 23.16 that Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Sometimes we just need a friend to just come visit us and strengthen our hand in God. And it's not necessarily a profound insight that they bring or not necessarily uh, a godly example that they extend or they don't necessarily help us get a breakthrough in terms of understanding what kind of decision we should make. But they're there and they're ready like the Lord, our shepherd, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And it encourages us in our difficulties. And so there are all these various ways, and they're all interconnected. And behind one gift is a multitude of other people exercising their own gifts. And even the simplest thing, like just being a friend and just being present to someone through the ups and downs in life is a major uh, ministry to another person. So many parts are necessary for the growth of the church. Not just one. It's not the minister, but a minister up here and other ministers in the pews. We need all gifts, not just one. Which raises an interpretive issue. And I said I would return to the leadership giftings in a few minutes. If we need all gifts, not just one or not just a few, then what do we do with all of the gifts mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now you've heard me say before that there are no apostles in the sense that uh, Paul is talking about the apostles here in Ephesians 4. Well, how could I assert that if we need all gifts and not just some? Or you've heard me say before, there are no prophets in the church today. Well, how can I assert that if we need all gifts and not just some? If that's the main thrust 
of this passage. We will recall from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the apostles and prophets were foundation layers. The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. We do need the apostles and prophets. We do need their work in order to grow onward and upward to maturity. We need to stand on the foundation that they laid. We do need them. We're not saying we don't need them. We're saying that they had a job and that they've done their job and that we need the lasting results of the job that they did, namely to set the uh, early church off on the right track and to write scripture for the rest of the church throughout the ages until Christ's return. Their work uh, was happening when Paul wrote Ephesians, but their work has happened by now. They were laying the foundation at the time that Paul wrote Ephesians. They have laid the foundation now. In sports, teams often have a starting lineup of players who will begin the game and set the team up for success, but not necessarily finish the game for whatever reason, due to fatigue or injury or even just the coach's desire to preserve the athlete's health and vitality for future contests. And so you see that sometimes the starting lineup doesn't always play the entirety of the game. But though not every player plays the whole game, it's still a cooperative effort involving all players. Even those on the practice squad who help the starters train, but never actually take to the field, and perhaps those who never even dress for the game. Professional sports teams have guys that just show up to practice. They don't put on the team uniform on game day. They watch the game on TV or in the stands. But they help the starting lineup train, and they're part of the club. Though not every player takes to the field, and though not every player plays the whole game, it is still a cooperative effort involving all players. And so it would not be inaccurate for a teammate to say at a press conference after the game, we need every member of this team. Saying we need all doesn't mean that we need all at every stage or in every situation. As we apply it back to the church, by way of analogy, you don't need the church custodian at worship practice unless he also happens to be the bass player. Right? You don't need the pastor in the ladies' prayer group. But we need each member of the church and the contribution that they make or, or the contribution that they have already made in their own place and time. And likewise it is that we need the apostles and the prophets in their place and time doing what they did in order to help the church grow onward and upward to maturity both in terms of orthodoxy and in orthopraxy. Now, as we come to evangelists, there's some debate, even, in, even within reform circles, of whether this is an office that uh, continues after the uh, apostolic era. I personally think that this is no longer an office that is functioning for a couple reasons. Um, one of which being there are no instructions provided with in terms of qualifications and responsibilities of evangelists. Unlike pastors, we read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, which are written to outline the responsibilities and the qualifications of pastors in the church. And I would expect 
um, that if evangelist was an office that was continuing to function, that we would have some clearer instruction from God's Word on what that is and what are the responsibilities and so on and so forth and what are the qualifications, that kind of thing. But I don't think that that one is a hill to die on. If somebody, if somebody wants to uh, send somebody out with the work of church planting or with the work of missions to an unreached people group and they want to call that person an evangelist instead of a pastor, so be it. That's not a, that's not a hill that I think is, is worth dying on. I, don't, I personally at least am not aware of significant doctrinal implications if we say that we have a continuing office of evangelist or if we don't. But as for our church, we believe that there are pastors and that there are deacons, which brings us to the last phrase and also raises a question. So first, shepherds and teachers. We see in Ephesians 4 verse 7, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Now, again, I'm going second hand here because as I tell you guys regularly, I'm not schooled in uh, the original Greek language. So I'm taking this second hand. But apparently, the Greek is ambiguous. It could be shepherds and teachers or it could be shepherd teachers. Like uh, one hyphenated role. And I think that theologically it makes more sense to understand it in the latter. Because how do, how do pastors shepherd the church but through teaching? And what is the aim of teaching but shepherding? In other words, you're not just teaching in a vacuum just to hear the sound of your own voice, but in order to shepherd the people that are in front of you. And if you want to shepherd the people in front of you, how do you do that? You teach them. So to me, it makes good sense to understand it when there's ambiguity in the word there. Um, and it could be shepherds and teachers, or it could be shepherd teachers. To me, it makes a lot of sense to say uh, the latter, shepherd teachers. In which case, Paul would enumerate here four leadership gifts instead of five. Um, so that would, be, that would be my understanding, that it is shepherd teachers. And that's referring to pastors. Pastor actually really basically just means shepherd. Pastors are those who work in the pastures doing pastoral work, right? Which is shepherding. And so uh, we believe that this is um, the office of the Word that God has entrusted um, to the church continuing until the return of Christ. And pastors, as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus outline are to hold to the apostolic teaching and uh, that they are to uh, deliver that, transmit that to other faithful men who in turn will be able to teach others also. And so pastors are, the pastor's job is to shepherd by teaching and teach by shepherding the substance of the apostolic doctrine that has been passed down. And the, that would include things like orthopraxy, how the church is supposed to behave, which have been passed down from the apostles. And so that's what we would see there. So you could read it, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, if you will. Which raises the question then, well, what about deacons? Here at CRBC, we believe that the two offices of the church uh, mandated by God until the return of Christ are pastors and deacons. And I just explained pastor, but what about deacons? Why are they not mentioned here then? Well, it's because in this section... Paul is mentioning the leadership gifts that have particular priority to the ministry of the Word. And so we see, for example, from Stephen, the deacon's example, that deacons can preach, but when deacons preach, 
They're not preaching as a function of their diaconal office. In other words, they're not, they're not preaching because they are deacons. They, they are deacons who just so happen to be preaching. The role of the deacon is rather to administer the practical affairs of the church in such a way that they free up the pastors uh, for prayer and the ministry of the word. And so that's the reason that deacons are not mentioned in this section, because Paul is listing the leadership gifts that have particular priority to the ministry of the Word of God. So that is an interpretive uh, issue that comes up in this section, uh, which we have addressed. So now moving on, we will remember that in order for the church to reach maturity in Christ, every member of the church must minister to one another in the ways that Christ has gifted them. We've seen that the goal is maturity, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and that the gifts vary diversely. In fact, it would probably be impossible to enumerate all the ways that we could minister one to another. But all are necessary. So let's now consider the giver of the gifts, who is obviously Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now as we turn to consider the giver of the gift, after looking at the goal, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and after looking at the idea of diverse gifts itself, as we consider the giver, Jesus Christ, a textual textual issue comes up. Paul quotes in verse 8 from Psalm 68, 18. But the problem is that he doesn't use the same words found in our common English translations of Psalm 68, 18. He says in Ephesians 4, 8, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, 18 says that He received gifts from men. Which is also more than just a very small adjustment. It's actually the exact opposite thing. So, For the astute reader, this poses an obvious textual issue. So let's address that before we come up, before we move uh, forward. Apparently, some manuscripts do have gave versus received. Um, Not the main ones, not the ones that typically uh, Bible translations are translated from, but apparently, some uh, manuscripts of the Old Testament do have. Gave versus received. So perhaps Paul is uh, legitimizing this alternative reading. Perhaps, even if he's not legitimizing that translation as a whole, perhaps he is using his apostolic authority to say that they got at least that verse right. Or perhaps he's using his apostolic authority to at least say, well, that may not be what the author of Psalm 68 18 intended, but it's still true. So I'm going to quote from that version. It's possible. But the idea of Psalm 68 is harmonious with Paul's train of thought here in Ephesians 4 anyhow. Regardless of what we do with manuscripts and translations and whatever. I'm, going to, I'm not going to try to resolve that because even as I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm not an expert in the biblical languages. So I, that's a debate that is beyond me. I'd be punching above my weight if I tried to resolve that. So I'm not going to. But what I'm going to do is just explain that the idea of Psalm 68 is harmonious with Paul's train of thought in Ephesians 4 anyhow, whether he's quoting it exactly or adjusting it with apostolic authority or whatever he's doing. At least 
the, the fact that um, Christ gave gifts to men is true. Paul clearly tells us here in that section. And we're told that elsewhere in Scripture. That's a true statement which Paul has apostolic authority to make. And quoting it from Psalm 68, what he might be trying to do is embed this giving of gifts to men in the context of what's happening in Psalm 68, which is a victory procession after a battle or after a war. In Psalm 68, we read about God conquering His enemies through His servant. And uh, the servant returning triumphantly from battle, receiving gifts from men, that is, gifts of tribute from those whom he had conquered, maybe imposing a tax on them or some kind of a levy or something uh, as part of asserting the new authority of a conquered region or a conquered territory or a conquered people group. And in Psalm 68 and verse 12, we read of uh, the victorious party distributing the gifts among those who were victorious. And so both in Psalm 68, we read of the receiving of gifts and the giving of gifts. So it seems that at the very least, what Paul is trying to do here is root this imagery of Christ giving gifts in the context of victory and a victory uh, celebration and something, gifts that can be given because of a victory, gifts that can be given because of a conquest. And so what we come to understand then, if we look at it in that context, is that Paul is talking about Christ as a victorious king after descending into the earth and doing battle against sin and Satan and death at the cross. He has conquered and he has now ascended. And as the victor, he is now dividing the spoils, as it were, with his people. Colossians 2.15 says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. One of the motifs that the Bible brings out uh, about what happened at the cross is that Satan and his uh, colleagues were defeated at the cross. Satan and all the other demons were defeated at the cross. When Jesus died... uh, they were dealt the death blow at the cross. And this idea in Colossians 2.15 about putting them to open shame has the idea of dragging them behind Him in a victory procession. The way that in that context, in in the Roman world, sometimes what would happen would be as the Roman army would defeat its enemies, they would bring their enemies back, dragging behind them in a victory procession putting them to open shame. And so this is what Christ has done at the cross. And this seems to be the motif that Paul is drawing on here in this section. We share in Christ's victory by establishing the new covenant and thereby conquering the claims of sin and death and hell over His people. Christ has won the victory. And as the ascended King who has released us from the claims of sin upon our lives, from the claims of Satan upon our lives, 
who has silenced the mouth of the accuser, who has set us free from the penalty of our sin that we deserved because of our, our sin, who has redeemed us from the path that we were on towards hell and toward destruction, as the one who has conquered every enemy of ours, as the ascended King, Christ divides the spoils with us. He, he gives gifts to men. This seems to be what Paul is saying in, Ephes- in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. In the new covenant, Christ has made provision for our justification and our sanctification. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the catechism definition of justification. And that's what we often think of when we think of the cross. Simply justification. That we have been pardoned. That our sin was laid upon Christ Jesus at the cross. His righteousness became ours. And Christ pardoned, God pardoned us for our sins because of what Jesus did in His substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. And thank God these things are true. But this is not the only thing that God accomplished for us through Christ on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, He was shedding the blood of His new covenant. When Jesus was dying on the cross, He was establishing the new covenant. And one of the blessings and one of the benefits of the new covenant is sanctification. The Catechism says, Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This is one of the blessings of the new covenant. It's not like God justifies us and then sanctifications at us. God justifies us and begins to work in us both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. He renews us increasingly in the whole man after God's image, enables us more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Christ uh, also provides for our sanctification by His mediatorial work as the mediator of the new covenant, procuring for us all the blessings of the new covenant, not just pardon for our sin and forgiveness in the first place, but ongoing growth in Christ-likeness. And these blessings include not only the Spirit Himself, the Spirit Himself to come and indwell us is a blessing of the New Covenant. Not only the Spirit Himself, but the gifts. We sang earlier, in a mighty fortress is our God, the Spirit and the gifts are ours. And so Christ, in giving gifts to man, is doing nothing more than unfolding further benefits of the New Covenant. Further benefits of the New Covenant. These gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. These gifts for the building up of the church. Now this is a gift to us, which helps us function more and more as we ought to in a Christ-like manner. But God giving gifts to you is a blessing to me. And God giving gifts to me is a blessing to you. 
God giving the church for us all and giving to each member of the church a varying and diverse gifts for the building up of one another is a tremendous gift from our Savior to help us as we make our way through the Christian life. We see in Jesus' ongoing care, in His provision of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in His provision of brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are fellow members uh, with us in the body of Christ, uh, in, in, in commanding us to work properly together to build ourselves up in love. We see Christ's ongoing care for us. We see that we have a Savior who is not willing to merely get us out of Egypt, but one who has made every provision for us in the wilderness and one who will get us all the way home to the promised land. We see in Christ unfolding these gifts to us in the context of the church where we will have friends where we will have brothers and sisters in Christ who take an interest in us and who will help us grow upward to maturity. We see Christ's ongoing care for the church. So in order for the church to reach maturity in Christ, every member of the church must minister to one another in the ways that Christ has gifted them. And that happens both in terms of a load-sharing ministry to one another, just doing things together instead of letting the burden default to one person or a small group of people, but also in ministering to one another in complementary ways as God has apportioned the gifts to each of us. The goal is that we would grow onward and upward to Christian maturity, which we could define as orthopraxy and orthodoxy together. And Christ is the source and the giver of these gifts. And so as we do it, we should do it out of thankfulness to Him for the gifts that He's given to us, for the manifestation of His glory, that Christ is a great Savior who not only saves from the penalty, but transforms and releases from the power. We should do it with a view of Christ in our minds as a great Savior who doesn't give us a halfway salvation, but an all-the-way-home salvation. And um, uh, we should do it uh, in response to, of course, the gospel uh, of salvation rather than a precondition of it. We're not trying to tell ourselves we're going to become Christians by exercising spiritual gifts. We're recognizing that as Christians we have spiritual gifts to exercise. And so this is the context within which we do these things. So... In what ways can you serve? In what ways do you think that you might be able to contribute to the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy of your fellow members here at CRBC? Where do you see needs that you can meet? Where can you contribute to the smooth functioning of the church? Where can you get behind the church and push for its success in pursuing maturity in Christ? In what ways have you been helped by brothers and sisters in Christ, even so far in the last few months here at CRBC? In what ways has the church already helped you pursue orthodoxy and orthopraxy? We should keep the goal in mind, seek to exercise our gifts in the church, and be thankful for 
Christ, our Savior, who has distributed gifts in the church for our common good as one of the blessings of the new covenant through which He gets us not just out of Egypt, but all the way home to the promised land.